And now for something completely different. Ah! Forget everything you've been told by others before. Get ready for the real deal. The full story. Real talk about money, markets, life. Now, it's The Real Investment Show with Lance Roberts. Presented by RIA Advisors. And good morning and welcome to the show. Of course, it is uh, Thursday. It is also the last day of the week because tomorrow is Good Friday, federal holiday, so markets are closed. Uh, but we will have economic data out tomorrow. It's, it's interesting, Norm, well, usually uh, what happens is that if you have a federal holiday and economic data falls on that Friday or that Monday, it gets moved to the day before. And this is what we saw with the employment report last time it fell on a holiday, but not this year or not this holiday. So Good Friday, though, economic data will still come out. And, uh, you know, and I was talking with Michael Leibowitz, uh, who's joining me this morning yesterday about this as well. And he actually made a good point. He says, we should release all the economic data on Saturday. And that way it gives markets time to digest. And we don't have these big knee-jerk reactions to employment data or GDP data or whatever it is. Kind of gives people a little bit of time to, you know, think about it and go through the data points and really see if it's that big of a deal or not. Uh, but nonetheless, markets will be closed tomorrow and we will get the, the big vaunted the employment report for the month of March, right? All eyes are on this because, of course, ADP came out earlier this week, 145,000 jobs. That was weaker than expected. Uh, so now immediately everybody's assuming that the Friday's employment report will be weaker than expected. And it could be. However... Over the last 12 months, in particular, the BLS report has not really been very correlated to ADP. In fact, um, it's been much stronger than the ADP reports over the course of the last year. So who knows what's going to happen on Friday? We'll see. We'll get the numbers. We'll go from there. Uh, but today is jobless claims, and we'll see if there's a pickup in jobless claims. You know, we keep talking about all these job layoffs, right, mostly through the tech industry, but... We have seen layoffs actually spread through the rest of the economy as well through other sectors, manufacturing, construction, et cetera. Not surprising, right? Um, home sales are slowing down, construction is slowing down. So you're starting to see layoffs in those areas. Um, but, you know, it's interesting because those layoffs have not really shown up in the jobless claims. Now, very importantly, we have to talk about jobless claims for a sec. What are jobless claims? A jobless claim is when you get terminated or laid off from your job non-voluntarily. So if you quit your job, right, you're like, take this job and shove it. That's fine, but you can't go make a jobless claim, right, because you voluntarily quit. However, if you involuntarily are separated from your job, you can file for a jobless claim. And then we have two different measures that. We have what's called the initial claim. So this is the measure of the people that are filing for the first time. That's what we get every Thursday. How many people last week filed for a jobless claim for the first time? These are people that just lost their job. And then we also have continuing claims, which are people that have, have continually claimed over a period of time. Right? We don't pay much attention to the continuing claims numbers, but we should because that tells us really how long it's taking people to go get reemployed. Right, So if that number is rising, that means that people are having trouble getting reemployed, and that number has been rising. So people are getting laid off, but they're not getting new jobs right away. Um, but the jobless claims numbers have been very low, sub 200,000 now for a while. And that's a very, very low level of weekly jobless claims. I mean, so think about all the things that happen in the economy, right? You know, you have businesses that just don't make it, right? 80% of small businesses don't make it. So 
you know, there's people getting let go of, of businesses that are just failing uh, from, from normal attrition reasons, right? Lack of capitalization, bad business planning, you know, whatever, whatever happens. That has nothing to do with the recession. It's just a function that every week businesses are going out of business. It just happens, right? I mean, every week on a street corner, there's some rug company going out of business, right? You see the big signs. Everything must go. They've been there going out of business for like 10 years, but every week they're out there going out of business. Uh, but that happens all the time. So there, there's those reasons. And then there's there's obviously reasons where people are, are being cut from jobs for lack of performance, not showing up, whatever it is, they're getting terminated. So there's always a reason why that has nothing to do with a recession. There's always reasons why people are getting terminated from jobs. And when you're talking about 190 million people in America that have jobs, right? Um, you know, 200,000 a week isn't that big of a number on a percentage basis, right? So that's just kind of the normal process. What we're looking for though, is for that number to rise. And if that number is rising fairly sharply, well, that tells us there might be something going on in the economy. Companies are really starting to cut back. Well, we've been talking about this re potential recession, right? Inverted yield curves. And this is a conversation that Mike and I have a little bit more in, in depth today about this dichotomy we have going in the, in, in, in the economy and the markets right now. I mean, so many indicators say a recession's coming, but analysts are, are optimistic we're gonna avoid a recession. And, and yet we haven't seen, one of the data points we haven't seen, and doesn't mean we won't, but we haven't seen jobless claims really start to pick up, suggesting that companies are becoming really defensive and, and really starting to protect capital more than anything else. And so jobless claims, continue to be relatively low. Of course, today is that number. Um, there, is, there are some expectations that we could see a fairly sharp spike in jobless claims. That first initial kind of look that maybe the economy is starting to slow down. And we got some data points earlier this week, ISM manufacturing, came, uh, sorry, ISM services, uh, still in expansionary territory, came in at 51 yesterday, but it was much weaker than the 54 estimate. So starting to see maybe a little bit of weakness now in the services sector. And remember, we talked to touched on this a little bit yesterday that, you know, services make up about 80% of our economy now versus 20% manufacturing. Back in the 70s, that was inverted. It used to be we were about 80% manufacturing, 20% services. So we're very dependent on the services side of the ledger right now. And think about all the things you do every day that are service-based, right? Uber, Lyft, Grubhub, DoorDash, whatever it is that you're doing, all those are the service side of the economy. That continues to be in expansion mode. It's not in recession yet, but it's coming down that way. And a lot of the subcomponents of that ISM services index, from employment to prices paid, et cetera, all showing fairly decent signs of weakness. Again, this is another one of those data points that have continued to weaken, suggests the economy is really slowing down, yet analysts and economists are still predicting an acceleration in economic growth through the end of the year, and more importantly, going into 2024, a fairly big pickup in growth, along with earnings rising back to where they were back in January 2020. So on one side of the ledger, and this is a conversation we'll have, uh, with Mike this morning, on one side of the ledger, we've got a, a Wall Street very optimistic about the markets and where we're going. And again, you know, we've talked about for the last few days that, that the market's doing very well here, nothing going wrong. Um, you know, we had a little bit of a pullback this week, as we expected, something we, we noted in our newsletter last week. So markets acting very bullishly right now, yet the economic data certainly tells a very different story. The question is ultimately is, 
who's going to be right and what's already been priced into the market. That's, that's the big challenge that we have for investors. A couple of things to look at real quick before we go. Gold price has obviously been moving up here lately. Um, you know, lots of concerns about things happening around the world. Uh, gold is extremely overbought here. Last time we were this overbought, you had a fairly decent correction in gold prices. So something you may want to look at taking a little bit of profit in that sector. Oil prices, of course, got a bump um, earlier uh, this week because of the surprise OPEC cut. Uh, oil prices also um, not cooperating with, with me this morning. Uh, <laughs> oil prices also extremely overbought here. And so that suggests that we're likely going to start to see a, a little bit of weakness, even though we have this, this oil price production cut. Uh, likely going to see some weakness in oil prices just because simply prices kind of got way ahead of themselves. Uh, that's just generally how it works. So again, we've kind of got this shift in, in, in the markets going on right now. Um, weakness in the technology side of the sector. We've seen a rotation the last few days into more conservative defensive areas, utilities, staples, etc. So again, kind of expected. We'll talk more about this after the break with Michael Leibowitz. Don't go away. Get daily investment news you can use. Delivered at the speed of the internet at realinvestmentadvice.com. What's new with Social Security this year? Our next Lunch and Learn will reveal seven things to watch in 2023. Thursday, April 13th at noon, Richard Rosso and Danny Ratliff will share Social Security claiming strategies, the 2023 COLA, and earnings tests. Our What's New with Social Security this year Lunch and Learn with Ratliff and Rosso, April 13th. Register now at realinvestmentadvice.com. Realinvestmentadvice.com. The Real Investment Show. Headline in uh, the Wall Street Journal today, Chipotle peppered with complaints over salsa spiciness. Obviously, these are not people that live in Texas. Because if you go to Chipotle, that stuff ain't spicy. That, that, that's like it's like Bud Light, right? Just watered down. I love, in fact, I love all the backlash Bud Light's been getting over their recent uh, endeavors into marketing. Uh, in fact, they somebody made a whole, you know, Bud Light, we salute you, our, uh, you yes. know, ad spinoff yes. on, on on the marketing genius behind their whole <laughs> recent <laughs> recent debacle. Uh, so quite interesting. But again, Chipotle, obviously, this is what you get when you get New Yorkers yeah. tasting spicy stuff. Well, as right. they say, there's no such thing as bad ink. <laughs> Correct. But... <laughs> Anyway, all right. Uh, like I said, a couple of things to get into this morning. Um, the economic data has been very interesting as of late because, you know, first of all, if you take a look at the Citigroup Economic Surprise Index, that's been rising as of late. Which, what does that mean? What that means is, is that the economic data was coming in stronger than analyst expectations. So, in other words, um, you know, you were looking for an employment number of 220,000 jobs and it came in at 330,000 jobs. And, and the, the series of data is all coming in better than expected. And that's not surprising because everybody was very doom and gloom last year about the economy. 
we were going to have a recession. The, the yield curve's inverted. And we, we told you then that the inversion of the yield curve is not the warning sign. It's when it uninverts that tells you that you're moving into a recession. And so everybody was very negative on the economy and, and where we were headed at that time. And so expectations um, were playing catch up, basically, with the employment data, with the economic data. So the economic data was weakening and optimistic analysts were being disappointed by the weakness of that data. And then, of course, they got very, very bearish last year. And, of course, now they were expecting very weak numbers, and the numbers were coming in better than expected. It's just kind of the way the cycle works. Um, it's always about psychology versus reality. And, and what's happening now, of course, over the last couple of weeks is that the economic data, everybody got kind of very bulled up on the economy. Now the economic data is coming in weaker than what they expected. So now that, that surprise index is starting to decline once again. So again, not surprising. It's just psychology. Markets were doing well since October. Uh, prices were rising. People were feeling better about things. And so it says the economy must be good because the economy's doing well. Expectations got a little bit advanced. But this, is, this does bring up the very interesting point that where we are today in the markets, right? So We've got this kind of dichotomy going on between economic data points, um, inverted yield curves, leading economic indicators, et cetera, and, and of course, plenty of media commentary, YouTube commentary, you name it, talking about the demise of the dollar, the world's coming to an end, and all this other stuff, and yet the market's continuing to do very well. So somebody's right, somebody's wrong, and the question is, is who is it going to be? And as I said earlier, if you take a look at economic GDP forecast by by mainstream economists, they're expecting only a very light slowdown in economic activity this quarter and next quarter. And by the end of this year and moving into 2024, we have fairly strong rates of economic growth coming, according to their estimates. S&P Global, who does the gap earnings estimates for S&P 500, also expects earnings to trough this quarter. And earnings will begin to improve into 2024. In fact, earnings, according to S&P right now, earnings will be back to where they were in January of 2020 by the end of next year. And so in order for earnings to get there, you've got to have fairly strong economic growth to support because that's where earnings come from, right? You just, earnings just don't magically appear. They come from economic, economic activity. So those two things, very optimistic. Markets, fairly optimistic. You can make a whole lot of data arguments right now fundamentally about potential for recession from all the economic data that's coming in. So the question is, who's right, who's wrong? Mike, welcome to the show this morning. How are you? I'm doing great. How about you? Good. So, you know, this is the big challenge for investors right now, which is trying to figure out, you know, um, plenty of views about an economy and recession, et cetera. Um, and a lot of analysts disagree and the markets tend to disagree right now. So who's going to be right? You know what, Lance, this is, I wish our listeners could be a fly in the wall in our daily investment committee meetings and just our conversations that we have throughout the days. And it's every day one of us makes a bullish statement, the other counters with a bear statement, and then we both go, yeah, that's true. And there, there's so many, so many pieces of diverging data. There, there's so much diverging data that, that we're getting 
and some of it is bullish, some of it is bearish. Uh, on the market side, you know, both earnings expectations and more technical readings tend to be very, have been very bullish. And we're starting to see things that have never happened in a bear market. At the same time, we can talk to all these yield curve inversions, leading economic indicators, uh, a whole host of data that, that has always uh, told us that a recession is coming. Like ISM is now at a level that has accompanied about 80% of all recessions. ISM is services, which is roughly two thirds to three quarters of the economy, slipped rapidly yesterday. Again, when that thing goes below 50, which could happen any month now, that's another recessionary sign. But you know, like Lance started with, unemployment has yet to really show any trouble. Although in the jolts and ADP data, we did see a little bit of weakness. Now, a lot of that weakness in ADP hasn't carried through to the, the number we're going to get on Friday from the BLS. So, you know, again, like Lance mentioned, I think keep an eye on jobless claims. That's likely where it's going to show up first. As we put in our commentary um, uh, yesterday or this morning, keep an eye on things like hours worked on temporary temporary hours that's usually where you see the first signs that there are problems instead of they don't companies don't don't lay off people what they tend to do is cut their hours they cut temp workers because laying off work laying off workers can be expensive they have to pay jobless claims and then they ultimately have to rehire them and you also don't want to upset your workforce that is still working for you you don't want them trying to find new jobs because they're scared for their jobs so so there are other little things that we'll look for but have yet to really show any signs that employment is slipping but you know we we, uh we actually wrote an article uh janet yellen should have hope something about hope and what hope is an acronym for is the progression through which the economy heads towards a recession it usually starts with housing goes to new orders new orders are found in the manufacturing and services indexes like the ism and then it goes to profits corporate profits and it goes to employment so the h and the o have certainly showed signs of recessions profits have weakened but they're not really declining rapidly and like we said employment has yet to really show much trouble at all so it's progressing but you know there's certainly bullish and bearish cases and i'm sure lance and i are going to be countering and making points and counterpoints for the next months of meetings and that's going to you know create create a need for us to be more active more vigilant have stop losses in place but also take riskier positions at times as well yeah, and that's and again, that's the challenging part here because you know even when you take a look at this rally so far this year, you know one of the keys for a a bull market is you need a bull market that's fairly broad, right? So you have a lot of stocks that are participating in that rally, and that's not been the case this year. Eighty eight percent of the rally since the beginning of the year has been you know defined by roughly ten stocks. The last time that we were writing articles about that narrowness was in late 2021 about october of 2021 we saw exactly the same thing we had 10 stocks making up 80 90 percent of the advance and of course it was just a few months later that that all kind of ended as we got into 2022 so it doesn't mean that necessarily you know it's a, it's a horrible thing that you have just a few stocks driving the markets but it does go to suggest that 
the market is not as strong as it appears on the surface. Part of this has to do with the passive indexing issue that we've talked about before, which is you have so many ETFs that own the same stocks, right? So Apple's in like 400 different ETFs. So every time somebody buys an ETF, money's just flowing into to Apple, uh, into that stock price, and, and they get roughly those 10 stocks are getting 30 40% of the flows that are coming into the market. So you get this bifurcation in the market that's not necessarily, you know, as healthy as it just looks like on the surface, right? The market's doing great. Everything's up. Well, not really, because if you look below the surface, there's a lot of stocks not participating in this rally. In fact, you know, it, it's it's been kind of an, uh, an interesting point that last year, everybody loved energy and hated tech stocks. This year, energy is the worst performing sector and technology is the best se- the best sector. So you're, you've had this rotation in the markets. But again, the market action isn't broad. You're not seeing a lot of participation across uh, the, the, the overall market. Financials, obviously, under a lot of pressures of late because of Silicon Valley Bank and Credit Suisse, et cetera. That's, a, that's one of the, the largest sectors in the S&P. So if that sector was participating, the, the market would even be doing better, right? But it's not been participating. It's been a lot of technology. Now, the last couple of days, and we talked about this in last weekend's newsletter as well, we said, hey, look, every sector of the market is overbought. We, and, and we had a chart in our newsletter showing the, the overbought, oversold conditions and of every major sector and major market. They were all pegged at the top of overbought. We said, hey, that's likely going to get a, a, a sell-off this week. We're likely going to get some kind of relaxation in the markets because everything's so overbought. You've got to have a little bit of a pullback here. And we also noted that the most out-of-favor sectors, which have been lately utilities and and real estate and, and uh, healthcare, would likely get some relative performance. This is a lot of work that Mike does on a regular basis, and that's exactly what's happened this week. So we've had a very normal rotation this week and this bit of a pullback. But again, as we start to look forward, you know, where is the market heading to next? And do these recessionary indicators tell us any clues as to what that might be? Be right back after the break. Don't go away. The Real Investment Advice blog. It's required reading for the informed investor. Catch it today at realinvestmentadvice.com. So you know that uh, spot you played about my daughter knowing everything? Yes. So I thought I I was going to have fun with it yesterday and... She came in. She says, there's something wrong with my car. It's making a funny noise. I said, well, did you check the defibrillator? She goes, of course. (laughs) I go, well, if if it's not the defibrillator, uh, you may want to try the combobulator because it's under the hood to the left of the battery. And if you fix that, generally, it takes all the noises out of the car. And she's like, I know. Um, So... (laughs) I'm waiting to see how long this takes her to figure it out. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> Ask her to check the blinker fluid level. Oh, that's 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 definitely coming today. So, <laughs> <laughs> I know it's right next I to know, the flux I know capacitor. Everything. Yeah, exactly. The flux capacitor. <laughs> see, the only thing, the only reason I didn't use that one is because she knows the movie. Oh, right. So <laughs> that's one of her favorite movies. Is, yeah. is Back to the Future. So if I use anything relative to that. 
Yeah, that'll that'll be the up. last one you use, and you'll see the light bulb go off. Like <laughs> maybe he's been messing with me. You may be just just a tad. <laughs> anyway, <laughs> so all right. So again, the markets, uh, you know, again, doing just fine. Uh, we talked about the fact that the markets had broken above important uh, resistance lately. Had gotten through the moving averages. Um, markets on a buy signal right now. The MACD buy signals are in place. Our money flow indicator that that is kind of our proprietary indicator that we use to manage portfolios is also positive. So there's you know the markets acting bullishly despite the fact that. Again, we have all this data out there, whether it's leading economic indicators or our economic composite index, which comprises 100 different data points from services to manufacturing to leading indicators, et cetera, um, has never been wrong relative to predicting a recession, currently predicting a recession. So the same thing for the six-month rate of change and leading economic indicators, which is also an infallible recessionary indicator historically. Could this time be different? Maybe. Um, but that's the challenge. And here's the interesting point about this, and, and I'm going to get Mike fired up over this because he just did a whole piece on this. But um, this is according to DataTrek. This, I'm gonna, I'm gonna, this is the quote from DataTrek. This is how equities on average trade in the last four end-of-hike periods. So this is saying that when the Fed stops hiking rates, how do equities trade following the end of that last rate hike. So if the Fed is going to stop hiking rates at this next meeting, and there's about a 50-50 chance right now of no rate hike versus a 25 basis point rate hike, this is how they trade. So I continue the quote. One month later, equities are up 3.3%. Three months later, they're up 8%. One year later, up 17.5%. Conclusion, U.S. equities tend to rally in the month, three months, and year after the Fed stops raising near-term rates. The only exception was in the year after the Fed, uh, Fed's last rate hike increase in March 15th of 2000, which was preceding the bursting of the dot-com bubble. So, um, and this is kind of the interesting dichotomy, right? Um, normally, stocks tend to rally during Fed rate hiking periods, yet we had a 20% decline during that that period now the fed is potentially at the end of the rate hike cycle and this has been one thing that markets have been rallying on is this whole hope of a pivot or a stop by the fed of raising interest rates and that means equities tend to perform better this is the this is another big challenge here is, is that really the case mike uh, you just did some research on this what did your details tell you well well that helps explain a lot of the confusion in the markets so the report that and research I did talked about when the from the day the Fed started cutting rates that year for that year out. And it also looked at when the Fed was raising rates, but it didn't look at that plateau. So if you go back and look at all the Fed fund cycles, what typically happens is the Fed raises rates, then they stop for a period of time and they flatline. It's kind of like a Mesa and then they start cutting rates. Sometimes that Mesa is only a few months. Other times that flat flatness is a year or longer. And sometimes they just pause and then rates go higher or they pause um, and rates can go lower. So what my studies show is that once the Fed starts cutting rates, the average drawdown is about 27%. Recent drawdowns have been much worse, but that's because valuations have been higher than normal. 
And this has been true. That covers the last nine Fed rate cuts, nine recessions, essentially. So, so what, the, what you just quoted, Lance, is that period of time is when the Fed's kind of doing nothing, right? Right. So right now, right now, the Fed is telling us they may do one more and then they're going to leave rates alone for a year or for the rest of the year. So they're they're, I guess, sending you a bullish signal, right? Because based on your data, the market does well when the Fed's raised rates, but then does nothing. It's as if the economy's fine now. We've done our job. We've we've achieved a soft landing. Unfortunately, those plateaus never stick around, and <laughs> and the the rate cycle is called a cycle for a reason. It's because it oscillates up and down. So so the the question that we all have to answer and, and the thing we debate all the time is how long is that period where the Fed does nothing? And, you know, the problem is the, that period hasn't necessarily started yet because the Fed still talks as if they may do one more. The market is still pricing one more. But what's interesting is if you look at the market, Lance, I'd say that analysis that you just gave us is what what's bullish. Mm -hmm. But at the same time, if you, you know, again, another divergence. But if you look at what the markets are pricing in, in the Fed funds, you know, bond markets, they're pricing in a pretty aggressive rate cut starting as early as June or July. So it's, you know, again, there's so many points of diverging data that send different signals. And, and in a lot of these cases, both signals have proven to be historically really strong. So the key, I think, is for us to understand what the market thinks, what the Fed thinks, what's probable, and how those big differences at times between opinions resolve themselves, because they will resolve themselves. It's just a question of whether the Fed acquiesces and drops rates significantly, or if the, the Fed is right, and we're going to be stuck at roughly 5% Fed funds for the next year, and the market's going to have to adjust to that that type of uh, uh, level. Well, and again, this is and, and again, this is why you know two things. I think there's two important takeaways from this for investors, and this is, you know, this is the thing that I think gets more people in trouble than anything else. Which is you take you take this headline out of context, and everything Mike said is absolutely correct, right? And this is historically how it always works. Now, could this time be different? Yeah, there is a little bit of a difference this time. Um, only in the standpoint that normally during rate hiking cycles, the, the market's still doing okay. Uh, generally, when the Fed's starting to hike rates, they're worried about economic growth. Uh, it's too strong. Um, and so they're hiking rates. And there's a lot of momentum in the market, right? So everything's still fine. The economy stocks are still rising during the rate hike. And then once they have to start cutting rates, it's generally in response to, oh, they broke something. And that's historically been the case going back over history. This time, the, the difference this time is that stocks actually declined during the rate hiking period, which, again, that's a little bit different than what we've seen in the past, but it's not unprecedented. So this is the problem, though, with taking this data. And again, you, you can take the bullish view of this. Data Trek says, hey, every time the Fed starts hiking rates, stocks do well. And so you go, great, I'm bullish, I'm all in. Um, and then something breaks, and then before you have time to respond, you know, markets are down 20, 25%. And, and that's the way it, it historically works. But this is a problem with headlines and, and a lot of, and again, you know, when you start looking at, and we, we talked a good bit about this yesterday about social media, because we were talking about 
how Gen Z, the majority of Gen Z are getting all their news now from TikTok. And, you know, which is fine. There's nothing wrong with that. Well, there is. But, you know, the problem is, is you get in a silo. So you only get one side of the information. And this is and, and so when you start making decision based on just one side of the information, that's that confirmation bias. We only want to hear that particular news. And, and again, there's all it's very easy to kind of get sucked down these rabbit holes of everything being bearish. Right. Um, we talked, you know, Mac, Mike and I talked last week about the whole reserve currency issue and and you know those, those issues and that's been all over the headlines as of late just you know reserve currency and dollar de-dollarization and people are panicking and i'm getting emails every day about oh my gosh what am i going to do um those those are very big macro issues that take years if not decades to play out and and particularly when it comes to dollarization that may be decades we're, we're talking about before anything actually occurs from that so making short-term decisions based on those type of headlines can take you down the wrong path. Also being overly bullish and ignoring all the all the recessionary data is also something that that will get you in trouble as well. So that's why it's so important to make sure that you're considering, and this is what Mike was saying about being audible and, and being flexible, because we're in one of those transition periods in the economy and the markets where the true trend of the market has not revealed itself. It could be bullish. Or it could be bearish. And and we're in that transition period right now where the market has yet to really declare itself in one direction or the other. We're getting some short-term bullish action, but a lot of bearish economic data. One of those things are going to be correct. Either the bearish action of the market is going to be correct. Sorry, the bullish action of the market is going to be correct. And the, the bearish economic data will turn and catch up to the markets or vice versa. And again, we just don't know what that is yet. But again, getting kind of sucked down that rabbit hole of being on one side of the coin or the other is what gets you into trouble. So a quick break. We'll come back. We'll finish up with Michael Leibowitz. I, I want to switch gears here just a little bit and talk about, you know, something else, particularly with the Fed Reserve coming up. That that next FOMC meeting is going to be pretty crucial. Talked about, you know, what we're hearing from several of the Fed speakers as of late and what that might mean for the next rate hike. Don't go away. Daily investment news you can use. Delivered at the speed of the internet at realinvestmentadvice.com. So, welcome back to the show. Uh, two things this is, this is really kind of a two part issue um, as we get ready to go into the next Fed meeting because. I'm actually writing an article about this this weekend. Um, I've gotten lots of emails about the reverse repo program. And uh, this is the reverse repurchase program that the Federal Reserve has. And it's surged now to well over two and a half trillion dollars in, inside this program. And, you know, so kind of writing a, a little bit of a detail on it in this weekend's newsletter, explaining kind of what it is, why it's there, how it's working, et cetera. 
but you know lots of concerns obviously right because of bank stress and and the banking crisis as of late does it, what does this mean and the reverse this reverse repo program is at levels we have never seen before even during the financial crisis the usage of the reverse repo program was nowhere even remotely near this level i mean it's it's a, it's a massive spike in the usage of this program so but this has two kind of components to it leading up into the next Fed meeting. So what happens in just in, in the very basic explanation, the Federal Reserve sells securities. So I'm the Federal Reserve and Mike is a bank or a money market fund or, you know, somebody else. And I sell him securities overnight. And the agreement is that he will sell those back to me tomorrow at a specified price that is higher than the price I sold him to today. So it's a guaranteed transaction and that and that and that repurchase, right? The Fed is going to repurchase those securities back. When they when I repurchase those securities back, the the differential, what Mike gets, is basically the interest rate. And what the what the reverse repo program does is it helps kind of control the Fed funds rate and and the the, the gives them some some control over that that overnight lending rate so the problem is is that or i shouldn't say there's a problem there's not a problem there's just been a massive surge of this because of money now flowing into to money market funds that are using the repo program because they need short-term obligations right because it's money market i've got to have cash available at any time if if brent is using mike's money market fund and Brent has $100,000 in, in Mike's fund. And Brent says, I need my $100,000. He's got to have liquidity. So money market funds need very short durations. So if you look at what, they're, what they use for their assets, you know, it's very short-term bills. It's one-month bills, three-month bills with very, very short durations, close to maturity. So there's lots of liquidity. So they can, they can redeem those money market fund shares on demand. One of the concerns about all this is that money market funds are not great reciprocators to the banks. As money market funds have risen in terms of, of yield, right? Now, a lot of money market funds are 4 4 4.5%. Go to your bank. What do you get at your bank? 0.1 if you're at J.P. Morgan on your money market balances. <laughs> it's sucking a lot of the capital out of the banks into money market funds. So this is putting more stress on small to mid-sized banks that don't offer money market funds. JP Morgan has money market funds, right? So they they get the benefit of all this. And because of concerns over small bank viability, depositors have been moving their assets to bigger banks for security reasons. This is putting more stress on the small banks. So this is why, you know, one of the concerns is this recent banking crisis that we saw with Silicon Valley Bank and with Credit Suisse isn't necessarily the end of the banking crisis because of what's happening with this transaction of, of money flows coming out of small banks, their deposits are leaving, their collateral is depressed in price, loan demand has fallen sharply because of what's happening in the, in the commercial real estate market, in the real estate market itself, the housing market, um, credit card le uh, default rates are rising. So small banks have a lot of problems. And, you know, the Fed funds rate at four and a half or approaching 5% isn't helping them because it's sucking assets out of their banks, which is, is, is impacting their reserves. Okay, having said all that, that's a 
that's a very basic explanation. There's lots of stuff that has to be filled in around that, but I, I think that covers most of it. Mike, um, this puts the Fed in kind of an interesting position in the upcoming meeting. You know, one thing that they could do is hike the overnight rate by 25 basis points, but drop the rate that they're paying on overnight reserves to try to force some of that money out of out of the repo program back into the banks. So I would it's a actually, kind of an interesting challenge. I would I would actually argue the other. Okay. The problem the problem the Fed has is that they put too much money into the economy. Yeah. Basically, they did too much QE, and there's I mean you can see by their repo balances at least two trillion of reserves that are not being put to use. So when I mean not being put to use, they're not being lent. They're just sitting on banks' books. And they are ultimately going into um, risk-free overnight investments. Correct. So just to back up a second, everything Lance and I have written about the Fed setting the Fed funds rate is wrong. It's technically wrong. What the Fed does is they set the Fed funds rate target. The Fed does not control the Fed funds rate. The Fed funds rate is the banks that bank is the rate that banks borrow from other banks. And the Fed will say, we want that rate to be to average 5%. And every day they put out the effective rate. And the effective rate is the weighted average of all those trades that happen during a day. And if the Fed's target rate is 5%, there's plenty of days where the effective rate is not 5. It doesn't vary by a lot, but it can be 490, 495, 505. And at month end and quarter ends, it can vary by quite a lot. So, so it, the Fed has doesn't control the rate they have to manage the rate and they do that by taking mo putting money into the money markets taking money out of the markets and they've been doing this forever and you, you know you can say it's qe qt but it but mm -hmm. it lasts for a day so the funds aren't put to use in the real economy or even into markets because they're so short short term in nature so the fed realized they have a problem they put too many reserves on the bank's books. The banks weren't lending that money and that money needed a place to go. Well, the banks are going to invest it. So there's plenty of things the banks can do with it, but everything they would do with it would push rates, would push overnight rates lower. There's just too much supply, too much demand and not enough supply of overnight investments. So the Fed makes their rate on these reverse repurchase transactions very competitive. So it, it basically absorbs the the two, you know, two trillion plus now, 2.2, 2.3 trillion of funds that really has no place to go. It, the banks don't have any desire to lend it. Um, it's also money market funds. Fannie Mae and Freddie Mac constitute a big chunk of that money as well. Everyone's sitting on cash from QE, but it's not getting put to the, into the real economy. And Lance, the, the question, and the reason I kind of started with, well, maybe they'll do the opposite. They don't want that money going into the economy because it's very inflationary. Correct. Once they make a loan, that's printing money. And if the Fed were to say, you know what, we're only going to we're only going to pay you two percent. Well, what would happen? The banks and the money market funds or the banks. Let's just talk about the banks. The banks have two options. They can either accept a lower rate somewhere else in some other investment. You know, they can buy very, very short term treasury bills, very, very short term corporate uh, paper, um, 
Fed funds, it would push those rates lower, it would push the Fed funds rate below where the Fed wants it to be. Or they can make a loan. And when they make a loan, that can be inflationary. They're printing money at that point. That's inflationary. So, you know, the Fed's, this has just has become, as the Fed gets more and more, as they grow in their um, governance of the markets and, and their, the way they control the markets, they need bigger and bigger tools to manage the markets. And that's what this has become. It's a, you know, yeah. $2 trillion overnight facility to help take the funds out that they put in with QE. Right. And then and the problem, though, is, and again, you know, there's a there's another problem. So they say, OK, you know, let, let's let's do what you said and let's lower the, the lending rate to two percent and force that money back into the banks. Well, the banks have a problem. Because, well, do you really want to make commercial real estate loans right now? Uh, you want to make mortgage loans at the moment. Right. You want to make credit card loans. You want to make uh, auto loans. I mean, all those are, you know, the credit card delinquency rates are spiking sharply, particularly in small banks in the, that aren't in the top 100. Uh, there's a big jump there. Um, most of the smaller regional banks, the majority of their loans are local. You know, loans are fairly local, right? So, um, you know, most of your small regional banks, they're making the local commercial real estate loans, the local housing loans, those type of things, car loans, et cetera. So there's no really incentive for them to make those loans and take the risk. So it's really a dichotomy, right? You know, they're getting paid enough to keep that money in, in, in you know, overnight lending rates. They just had a screen up on CNBC while you were talking showing uh, the deposit rates at all the major banks versus interactive brokers. Interactive brokers right now is paying four, a little over 4%. Fidelity pays over 4%. Schwab pays like 0.4%. Um, JP Morgan pays 0.01, Wells Fargo pays one, but everything is well below uh, you know, on deposit rates. Everything for the for the consumer is three percentage points below what the Fed is paying out in overnight rates. And so banks are sitting back going, why take the risk of loaning anything? Right. This is the, this is the other. This is the conundrum. Why take the risk of loaning any money out? I can just collect my money here and, and not pay my customers anything. I make a huge spread. Right. So, Mike, uh, cl cl closing comments. You got 30 seconds. Go. Just keep your head on a swivel and just, you know, this economic data is starting to turn lower, but bullish signs in the market are, are starting to look more optimistic. So just keep an eye on everything and uh, and be ready to act in both directions. There you go. All right. That wraps up the show for today. Get by the website. Our newsletter will be out this weekend, even though it's a holiday. It will be out for you on Saturday. Um, also, of course, while you're there, make sure and get our daily market commentary. Uh, we'll post that this morning at 730. And then, of course, we'll keep you up to date with the markets, your money, everything else right there at realinvestmentadvice.com. Have a great day. And most importantly, have a wonderful Easter holiday. And we'll see you back here next week.